following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good morning, everyone. We trust that you are well this morning. Thank you, Duane, for helping us out with that. We're going to show a couple of short video snippets, and then I'll have... Uh, my lesson for the rest of the time here. So some of the young people may come in and watch this, but then depart for their Sunday school class. Any prayer requests that you have for us as we begin this morning? Yes, somebody's asked prayer for a vacation Bible school. Starts tomorrow morning. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, if you are volunteering, uh, well, if you're not volunteering this week, uh, you might consider, if you can, stop into the church one morning and see how things are and uh, be able to pray better for things that way. And also, uh, if you are able, after this service, uh, not this service, but the morning worship service at about noon, we have a bunch of things to move around down here and to put into place for the children's ministry this week. And I know that uh, Steve and Debbie and Jansen and Kaylee would appreciate our assistance in doing some of that manual labor. So I hope that you'll be able to stay and participate in that, invest a few minutes for uh, the work of the ministry. Let's pray. God, we begin this morning with prayer. We acknowledge our need for you, and in this way we worship you, express our dependence, and our request that this morning's service and the next one and the, t- the time of setup afterwards and this evening will all be times in which you're honored and not times in which you are set aside or treated as unimportant. The Lord Jesus is the center of our church and services, the word that is proclaimed here, and our activities such as the Vacation Bible School. And Lord, we pray that you help us prepare today and tonight and that the rest of this coming week, Monday through Friday, We will have a great opportunity to share Christ with young people and see some come to know him as Savior. Others perhaps to make decisions to to, uh, dedicate themselves more fully to follow him or even to go into some kind of future ministry. We ask you to work in our midst, for if you do not work, then nothing of value will be accomplished. We thank you. We pray this morning as we look at a couple of short video snippets and then teaching of the word that it will be profitable to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this first video snippet that I'm going to ask Dwayne to play uh, is from Mariano Proto in Uruguay, and it's a few weeks old. I intended to show it to you before, but I had forgotten. Uh, It's just a very short little update that will give you an idea of what is going on there. You'll see that his attire is not warm weather attire because it's not summer there. winter. So uh, let me have Dwayne uh, show that to us and hopefully that can be visible on the uh, live stream as well. Go ahead, brother. Hi, everyone. We just want to give you a short update on the progress on the multipurpose building. As you see in the video, right back over there, we have the bathroom already built. That's going to be the little kitchen. And we already built all the structure that will support the roof next week. Thank you for your prayers. We just wanted to share with you what is the progress on the building here in Carmelo. Thank you so much. 
All right, so that's Mariano Proto uh, trying to keep warm in the cold. Um, but can you imagine, you see that? It looks like a fairly small structure, doesn't it? That's the one bathroom and the little kitchen. Uh, they're satisfied with very little there. So we, uh, we commend that to you. Now let's look at the uh, next video, and uh, let me see if I can help us find that one on the computer here. How are you, beloved brothers and sisters? It is a joy to share with you through this way what the Lord is doing down here. My name is Ricardo Daglio, and my wife's name is Silvina. We were born in Argentina, me 55 years ago, and Silvina 53 years ago. I met the Lord at the age of eight years old, having grown up in a Christian home, although my life was impacted by the work of Christ clearly at the age of 16, the same age that my wife was saved. We had three children, Carolina, 32, and married Lucas, 29, and Micaela, 27. None of them are living with us anymore. And we have a beautiful grandson called Mateo or Matthew. Our for serving has been in a Bible Institute years ago, and I've been also a graduate of Integridad y Sabiduría, Dominican Republic, and currently I'm doing a master's degree at the master's seminary online. By the grace of the Lord, we have been in ministry since 1987. We have served for four years in Buenos Aires, then 16 years in Uruguay, and now for 12 years already in Patagonia, Argentina, and living in a city called Villa Regina of about 45,000 inhabitants. Here in Patagonia, we serve in a local church that is made up of people from different cities throughout the Rio Negro Valley that is our state. Many brethren travel up to 63 miles each Sunday together because of the lack of healthy churches near their cities. We also travel this distance weekly for Bible studies in the cities where the brethren live, not, not much now because of COVID restrictions, of course. We are also thankful to be able to help in the beginning of a church 310 miles away from home, where we have trouble regularly to support the group of believers there, and now, thanks God, soon a pastor will be in charge. The need in Patagonia is great, as well as the distance is to be troubled. The Lord has recently provided us with a better vehicle with which we can travel more safely. But our greatest need is to be able to establish ourselves in a more strategic city, to be able to minister to existing groups of, and establishing new congregations in this area. Also, the Lord has given us the, or has given me the privilege of forming part of a council of Ante Su Palabra. Ante Su Palabra is a fellowship of pastors and churches who believe in the authority and sufficiency of scriptures and seek to help build other churches into the Spanish-speaking world. The Lord has chosen to bless this ministry and has given us the opportunities for doing conferences, both in Argentina and the USA, preaching workshops, and pastoral network phone calls. We appreciate that you can pray for us to continue with the work of sowing to see healthy churches established in so many towns and cities in the vast Patagonia, Argentina. Please do not hesitate to contact us for anything you would like to know. Here is our email address 
for you to do so. Thank you for taking the time to consider this short video. The Lord bless you all, dear brethren. Bye-bye. So, obviously, uh, Ricardo and his wife, Silvina, have been uh, ministering there in South America and are native uh, to that place, so they're not U.S.-based missionaries. Um, he was uh, involved in the ministry of one of the Gospel Mission of South America's um, mission works, which was headed up by the father of Colby Holmes. And so Colby and Ricardo are about the same age and enjoy a nice friendship with one another uh, over many years because they were in the same church together for quite some time. And uh, so I got to know Ricardo in South America, and uh, he came here one time. Uh, he was here midweek in a midweek service and spoke at this pulpit and uh, gave us the word, which is an encouragement. Uh, so probably most of you do not have not met him before, I'm guessing, but... Uh, he is a fine brother, and we've enjoyed great fellowship at uh, conferences and things when I've been down in South America and, and he here. So I just wanted to share that with you, uh, those, both of those little video snippets, just to keep missions in front of your mind and that you might pray for these ones. You see uh, Ricardo especially, uh, he's ministering in three or four cities, and that one city 300 and some miles away, he was helping to uh, establish that local church there, and now they're going to have a pastor and uh, that's just a wonderful word, but there, he and a couple of others are just trying to hold things together by threads, kind of, They're, you know, little groups of people that are like, you know, the, the man from Macedonia calling for help. They're believers, but they're not able to have a church, in a well-ordered church, because they don't have somebody trained in the word to be a pastor at all, so they're looking for any kind of help that they can, uh, can find. So I commend that to you this morning. All right, we're going to let uh, the young people go to their Sunday school class, and uh, unless, unless you all want to hear about the theology of the cross, that's what we're going to hear about. <clears throat> they want to go and be in their own classes. I thought I would, uh, this is really just an extra thing here that I'll pass out. It's not quite folded correctly because it was an old, uh, old format, um, but you'll kind of be able to find the uh, find your way there. Good morning. How are you? The front is kind of on the back. You'll see. <laughs> there you go, brother. And uh, this was just something I wrote. Uh, Quite some time back, I was looking at it, and I did a series on the doctrine of salvation back in 2002. And so this uh, is a little review uh, of that. This is just some of the, uh, the blessings of salvation or the results of salvation. And so I'll let you uh, ponder that as you have opportunity. We won't be going over that in, in detail this morning. Uh, that is not available uh, I, that's not available on the church website at this time. But the notes that I'm going to be using this morning are available on the church website. If you go to the uh, website and see in the menu, I think there's a connect menu. And you just open that up and you'll see bulletins and notes there as well as the live stream. 
and uh, you'll find uh, this document there listed for today under the bulletin. Under the Theology of the Cross and the notes for this morning's service, uh, worship service at 1045 are also to be found there on the website. But we're talking about the Theology of the Cross this morning and thinking about the Gospel And uh, I want to just start by introducing it this way. We can study the doctrine of God's salvation under various subheadings, if you will. We could start with the need for salvation on the human side. You can uh, talk about the person who saves on the divine side. Engage, let's engage our minds with this now. This is important. Uh, You can think about the doctrines of grace that form the foundation theologically of uh, salvation, so the doctrine of uh, Scripture, the doctrine of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, uh, and and those things. You can uh, talk about the the doctrines of calling and election and uh, predestination and God's desire to glorify His people and and plan to do that. Uh, You can talk about the application of the blessings of salvation. See, talk about salvation, it's a huge topic. Whole books are written on it, and even on subparts of what we're talking about. So the need of salvation, the person who provides the doctrines of grace, the application of the blessings of salvation to an individual or and to the church, and then the outworking of sanctification. You know, once you're saved, that's not the end. That's only the beginning uh, of uh, God's work in our lives for both the individual and for the church, and the ultimate end of salvation, which is the honor of God. But I haven't mentioned one thing in that list, and that one thing is what I'm calling the theology of the cross. Uh, one uh, author writes, uh, wrote a book uh, called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. That was Leon Morris back in the 1950s. Uh, very good book. A third, uh, I have the third edition, 1965. Bruce Demarest wrote The Cross and Salvation. Uh, and so the doctrine of the cross is a very important doctrine. Um, and so the theology of the cross is at the very center of all that that I just mentioned, from the need of salvation to the glory of God and providing it to us. Right in the middle of this is the theology of the cross. And it specifies how the Savior did his work and what he accomplished to make a salvation sufficient to save sinners and how it solved the problems that humanity faced in establishing and carrying on a relationship with God. Think about that. How do you establish and carry on a relationship with God? How can a man be just in the sight of God? Job asks in the book of Job. So we're going to look at this more limited subject, and perhaps for a couple of sessions here in our Sunday school time, the theology of the cross, and find out that it is in itself an extensive topic. But let me caution this. In looking at the doctrine of the cross, I don't want us to treat it or think of it as, a, as an academic exercise, The theology of the cross is deeply personal. It's not an academic subject, not a dry subject. Rather, it's one of those truths that is most precious to the believer. It explains how we can have a real 
not academic, but a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the doctrine of the cross, somebody's going to say, well, that church, all they focus on is doctrine. Now, the doctrine is the teaching that connects us with God, what God has taught us, that we might have a personal relationship with him through Christ. The theology of the cross is a lengthy expression of just how God loved and how he provided salvation for people who did not deserve it, who could not earn it, and who cannot live up to it fully. Okay, We don't, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't live up to it. But God has provided it, and the theology of the cross tells us about how he has done that. And so let me give you just the outline just to, so we don't get lost in the... In the uh, forest here and all these parts of this doctrine. What I want to talk about first is the problems that are solved by the cross, the problems solved by the cross. And then I'm going to give you uh, the how those problems are solved. There's a number of those problems, and I think I'll have five of them uh, listed for you. And then after that, we're going to talk about how the cross solves these problems. We're going to talk about the atonement. You don't have to write all these down. All the notes are available, like I said, and you can get them, but hopefully we can understand and think through this together this morning. The atonement, we're going to talk about expiation, justification. We're going to talk about the satisfaction of God's wrath, reconciliation, redemption, and also substitution, although as you, if you see the notes, you'll see that section is not done yet. Uh, too much to do in one, in one week. So the problem solved by the cross, the, the human race is entirely given over to sin. Hatred, lust, pride, greed, idolatry, thievery, uh, and so on. Ecclesiastes 7.20, one of those verses that you might want to, to remember if you don't already, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says that there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin. Okay, so that's kind of like the uh, Romans 3.10 of the Old Testament. You know, there's none good, no, not one. Nobody seeks after God. Uh, all have gone astray, all, that kind of thing. This idea in Ecclesiastes 7.20 is very interesting. Nobody on the earth has done good and does not sin. In an ultimate sense, then, the problem solved by the cross is the sin problem. But we can elaborate on that a little bit more. And I think that elaboration is helpful because it helps us to see just how deep our problem is. You know, we Christians talk about sin. Sometimes people in the world that are not saved look at us and think we're kind of crazy or... Of course, everybody sins. What's the big deal? Well, I'm about to explain what's the big deal, what the Scripture teaches about sin and the problems that arise because of it. Number one problem is the wrath of God. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So for us, because we understand and believe the scriptures and we know God, we know that God is unhappy about humanity's departure 
into sin, away from holiness. What it is is rebellion. And rebellion against God displeases God because He lovingly and carefully created humanity. And He placed, think of it, He placed our first parents in an ideal environment, didn't He? There was nothing wrong in the Garden of Eden. God created everything. He saw that it was very good. By the end of the sixth day, he rested on the seventh. All was still well. Sometime after the seventh day, things fell apart. But rebellion against God displeases him because he's the creator and he put our parents in the ideal environment. He warned them about a certain misbehavior and yet they partook of that behavior despite the penalty that was attached to it. In the day that you eat of it, what? You will surely die. Now, God's wrath uh, is not an attribute of God. It's not marked by human frailty like our wrath is, where wrath goes astray and does not work righteousness. Look at uh, James chapter 1 and verse number 20. I should stop and visit all these verses. I've already quoted several for you this morning. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and what? do not sin, sin not. That is a tall order for humans. Anger quickly goes out of control. Now, God is, so God's wrath is not an attribute. It's not subject to human frailty. God's wrath, or God is not offended like humans are. You know, when we get offended, we get all pouty or all angry or whatever. God's wrath is not an emotional thing. You know, when we're angry, the emotions can take over. Although, obviously, God is a personal being, and as a personal being, he has emotions, so there, it's not totally devoid of emotion, but it's not the kind of emotional experience that people have. What God's wrath is, we said what it's not, but what it is, is a temporary disposition in God that arises because of an offense to his holiness. A disposition in God. A position, if you will, of him against sin. It's directed at the person who did the sin. Okay, what we're trying to do is highlight that sin is the problem, and how bad is that problem? Well, it causes wrath of, of the wrath of God to arise against the sinner. Wrath is not an abstract thing. It is that God is angry with the wicked all the time. But how he is angry with the wicked is the, really the nub of what, the center of what God's wrath is. It's like he's a perfectly objective judge sitting in a courtroom. Picture the scene. He's not, he's not angry, flying off the handle, lashing out at people. He sits there. He objectively is evaluating what has happened. You've broken the law. This is the penalty associated with breaking the law. You are sentenced to that penalty. And then the bailiff takes the person out and works that penalty upon them, probably put them in jail in our case, but 
In this case, it's a much worse situation. It has to do with eternity. It has to do with eternal death and punishment for sin. But this wrath is a temporary disposition, and it's directed at a person. Okay? God is like this judge. Now, to be a good judge, what does God have to do? He has to execute the sentence on the person who is in the wrong. He has to hand down the sentence to satisfy justice. He has to hand down the sentence in order to give some relief to the victims of the sin. What would you call a judge, a federal judge, a a state judge, who never punished evildoers? He wouldn't be a good judge. We know inherently you can't get away with murder. You shouldn't. You shouldn't get away with all kinds of other crimes as well. You shouldn't, but too often it happens because we live in an unjust world. There are judges that are not just judges, but God is a perfectly just judge, and in the exercise of that justice, he displays his wrath against sin. And that comes down to the personal level. Now, I mentioned about victims getting some relief. You know, if, if uh, some, some scoundrel murders your family member, you can never bring that person back. But some level of relief can be felt if justice is served upon that person so they don't get away with it. So that the, the cost, the, the value of the life that was taken is not cheapened by just letting the person go their own way. In the case of sin in general, there are multiple victims. Who is the most important victim of sin? God. Against thee and thee only, David says, have I sinned. Psalm 51, verse number 4. Secondarily, other human beings are uh, victims of sin. And also, now this one's harder to see, you yourself are the victim of your sin because it separates you from God. It works on you harm. Even when you do sin that brings you personal pleasure, somehow, that's actually a perverted pleasure because it's doing damage to you. So, victims from God to others to self. God is at once now the primary victim because you've offended his holiness and you have thumbed your nose at the God who made you, created you, kindly cares for you, provides for you. So God is is at once a victim, but he's also the perfectly objective judicial officer. And that's hard to grasp too, because you think, well, how could I be the victim and yet be the guy in the flowing robes that's sitting on the the judicial bench executing the, the justice upon the person? Well, for us, that would be very difficult. It's possible, I suppose, you could imagine somebody who could be that principled, but usually, you know, the judge who is a victim himself of a crime is going to, what, recuse himself from the case and let another judge deal with it so that it's more objective in uh, the judgment. Now, so God is at once the victim and also the perfectly objective judicial officer, Part of that tension of of how can God be the victim and the judge is that God is three in one. And the Son of God took the sins of the world to himself and he took the judgment of the Father for the sins of others. So if you think of it 
you have the judge sitting on the bench and a stand-in criminal, Jesus, I say stand-in because he wasn't a criminal, but he stood in the place of criminals, God in the flesh taking the punishment of God, his own father. And so this is a very complicated situation if you think about it. The wrath of God is directed against the Son of God who stands in place of the criminals against God. The gospel is a marvelous thing. If you try to wrap your head around it, it's just too much. It is just too much. But this, the, the, the whole idea of the Trinity and, the, and the, 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 the constitution of God solves this some of this difficulty of how can God be victim and judge. Well, God is victim of the sin and he's judge, but his son has also taken the punishment as, as it were of the victim of the wrath of God. He judged himself in a way to provide for helpless others to be rescued. This is far different than a strictly monotheistic God who gets offended at sinners and gets angry at them and lashes out at them. And, uh, you know, as with some deities, you know, you just, you would never know if you're going to be on the right side or the wrong side of that God because he may just be upset at you and punish you for your sin and thus you hope, maybe, perhaps, you'll have his favor, but we know that we can have God's favor because he put his put our punishment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's getting ahead of myself, that's substitution. Uh, there are other uses of the idea of the wrath of God, and this helps us understand the depth of the problem again. John 3.36, remember what that text says? If you do not believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God abides upon you even now. Romans 5.9 tells us also. I'll turn to this one, and maybe you can turn to a couple of these with me as well. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 6. This... uh, says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That was, that was us before we were saved. That's everybody before they're saved. And then Revelation, well, actually Colossians has another one, Colossians 3 and verse number 6. Because of these, well, I'll, put, I'll go back to verse 5, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then the book of Revelation expresses the wrath of God uh, quite a number of times as well. Now, I just quoted from John 3, Romans 5, Romans 12, Ephesians, Colossians, and Revelation, in which there are one, two, three, four, five, six verses in Revelation that use explicitly the phrase, the wrath of God. 
What did you notice about all those verses? Where are they found? Our brother has it. The New Testament. But I thought the wrath of God was only in the Old Testament. Nope. No, in fact, it's very interesting. In one translation, I looked up the exact phrase, wrath of God, never appeared in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Now, of course, the idea of it is there, the anger of the Lord or the Lord's wrath. I can look, it up, look up other phrases and get the same idea, but I just found it interesting. The idea of the wrath is found in the Old Testament, but only in the New King James by that word or phrase, wrath of God, in Psalm 78, 31. Every other use of that phrase is in the New Testament. So the notion that God is love in the New Testament and his wrath in the Old Testament is entirely false. God's love extends from beginning of history to the end, and his wrath against sin does as well. There's no uh, division, if you will, or different type of God in the Old and the New Testament. So every single human being has existed for some part of his or her life or all of it thus far in this state under the wrath of God. You know, some people who are in that state, they just laugh at that. But it's no laughing matter. The wrath of God against sin is a heavy-duty matter. Uh, you think of, think of it, that there is only a very thin string that is holding you up if you're under the wrath of God And that string is your life, your breath. One breath away from perishing and being eternally lost under God's wrath. Because the wrath of God abides upon those who are sinners. You don't understand that now, perhaps, if you're not a Christian, but think about it and ponder what God has done. Think about the Word of God. Think about what sin does, and then you can understand better, hopefully, what this is all about. This is the wrath of God. Now, we don't have time to go through the other problems, the enmity of God, the bondage of sin, guilt of sin, and death. But let me jump down in my notes to the doctrine of propitiation, which is the satisfaction of God's wrath. What does propitiation mean? It means to placate or appease the wrath of a person. So if somebody's mad at you, you could say, how am I going to propitiate this person? We never say that because it's too big of a word. How am I going to make this person happy? How am I going to appease them? How am I going to please them, placate them in this, this matter? What can I do to make things right? But propitiation is the only solution for the wrath of God. Now, a kind, of, uh, a kind of propitiation is found in Genesis 32. Don't turn there, but just think with me of the story. You remember Jacob has gone away for 20 years? What was he doing? He was fleeing his brother who was a little upset at him. And then Jacob has to come back. And so what does Jacob do on the way back? He sends these uh, waves of gifts to his brother saying, perhaps... I will appease his anger, you know, kind of thinking that, man, if 20 years has gone by, he might still be as angry as the day I left. Not a good situation, you know. Uh, I'll be in trouble. 
Uh, but his brother had cooled down. You know, 20 years can tend to do that sometimes, hopefully uh, it should. Um, but he sent that kind of pacification, if you will, uh, to pacify is Proverbs 16, 14. Let me see if I can uh, look that one up real quick here. Proverbs 16 and verse 14. As, it says, as messengers of death is the king's wrath. So when a king is angry, boy, that's not good. But a wise man will appease it, that wrath of the king. Propitiation is pictured in the Old Testament as a sweet-smelling savor to God. Remember when, uh, like in Genesis 8 after the flood, they laid the sacrifice on the altar and it burned? That was a sweet-smelling savor to God. It was placating or propitiating the wrath of the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, there are several verses that use this idea. Let me just read them quickly to you. And then we will have to close. 1 John 2, verse 2. He himself, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. So, And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So if you ask, how does God become satisfied about my sin? How can I, how can I placate God about my sin? Well, this verse actually says more than just that Jesus, or that there's a propitiation for the, our sins and the sins of the whole world. It says, He Himself is the propitiation. Not me, not what I do, okay? Not how I think, not that I, you know, study the doctrine of the theology of the cross enough. It's He Himself, Jesus the Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. How can a man be right before God? How can God be pleased with a man? Only in Jesus Christ, because he himself is that satisfaction for the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10 adds, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's a wrong question to ask, What is the propitiation for my sin? The right question to ask is, Who is the propitiation, the satisfaction for my sin? Romans 3.25, speaking of Christ again, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. That's because he had overlooked, or not overlooked, but passed over the sins that were previously committed. Hebrews 2.17, finally, therefore, it says, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, on the one hand, this morning, we have talked about the need for salvation, uh, the, the depth of sin in the idea of the wrath of God. And we have talked about the solution to that wrath, which is in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And so, yes, we have a very deep problem, but there is a huge solution to that problem available if we will take it, if we will take him for ourselves. Let us thank God for that this morning, dear beloved. Lord, we thank you for the clear teaching of the Bible that brings us low 
when it talks about your displeasure against our sin. And we also thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture that reminds us that Christ himself is the satisfaction for that wrath. And we thank you that that wrath can be redirected away from us and it was taken care of in him who loved us and loosed us from our iniquities with his own blood, the blood of the cross. And may these next uh, couple of sessions that we have, as well as this one, serve to uh, elevate our love for Christ and our love for you and our thanksgiving and gratitude because we better understand not only the depth of our problem, but the height of the solution to our problem. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.